Keep my supply. Got Dan over there working on it. Um, my name is Rosemary. I'm a non-practicing alcoholic. I am a member of the Auto Bank Group of Alcoholics Anonymous, which meets at St. Andrew's Episcopal Parish House on Tuesday and Saturday nights at 8.30 on the Beach Road at Nag's Head. And this is a plug. <laughs> uh, we do need you. Uh, none of us ever have been able to do it alone. And Barney's kind introduction uh, is about the way it is with me. Uh, I hated myself. I felt like a failure. I felt misunderstood. I I was a, a frightfully sick, I guess you could say, a just full of fright. I guess you could say, and I can say rather, I was fearfully sick. I was so full of fear. And I became so totally hooked, addicted, dependent, on this liquid chemical that was my answer to these awful inner feelings. <coughs> uh, it was the answer, and it was just what I needed. It made me feel the way I wanted to feel. It made me feel one of the games. It made me feel like I belonged. It helped me to feel not so agonizingly self-conscious. The agony of the teenager. The girl who wears size nine shoes when the other girls wear fives and sixes. Who has braces on very prominent butt feet. Who is taller than any of the other girls in her crowd, and skinnier, and more tomboyish, and who simply knows all of the male age of just not belonging, not being like other people. There's a couple of dreams that intermission spend in very short time before the day. And then in another time during the bank, I intermissioned more than I blame. <laughs> With all some of the side things that go on. Was a way of life that made life comfortable and even bearable for me. I was one of five children. I was the second girl. I was already a disappointment because everybody knows that Parents like to have a man, a male son and heir. And here I was, oh God, another girl. And what complicated the whole thing, the way I felt about it, was the next child was, you guess what? A baby boy. Oh, joy. And he was a joy, and he is to this day. And the poor guy was outnumbered because David is one boy and he had four sisters, so he had problems too. 
and he went to Catholic school where the nuns worked on him. And he had a mother who was idealistic, perfectionalistic, and who thought that her baby boy David could do no wrong. And he was handicapped too. But the hell of it is, I was, and am concerned right now, was sharing with you how it was with me. Out of five children, four of us became alcoholics. That was something wrong. <laughs> Two of us have died. Two of my three sisters have died of alcoholism. By the grace of God, and because people like you care, I'm sober today. I need every single one of you to be sitting in whatever chair you're sitting in. I need to know that you fellows are standing up back there. I need to know that being here over here, and boy, I love your interest. You know, we could work up a saucy routine that would wow them. <laughs> it's nice to find out I don't have that boost to be able to do a saucy routine, too, if I had a real cute partner like him. Anyhow. <laughs> And I feel good because I know there's a door there, and if I do panic, I can get out of it. I simply was overly sensitive to the world into which I was born. Everything was frightening, everything was painful, and everything depended in this whole creation upon whether I liked it or I didn't like it. I was the center of the universe. This meant I was responsible when other people got hurt in some weird but painful way. It was my fault. I remember feeling like I, I, maybe they adopted me or something. I didn't belong to the family. I believe I asked Mother once as freely that, you know, I was adopted. I wasn't like my older sister Betty, who had naturally curly hair and dimple, and loved to play with dollies and like to wear lace petticoats. And people would come to the house and Betty would be in showing her lace petticoat and her dimples and her dolly and the guests would say, oh, isn't she a delight, Helen and Harry? And she's such a lovely child. And word would have been sent to me to get down out of the tree or off the top of the boathouse or wherever I happened to be, escaped to at the top. So run in, go in the back door, wash your hands, brush your hair, put on the front front, come in and meet the guests. And oh, agony. We were trained to drop curtsies to the guests. And here is this solemn, solemn tomboy coming in in the agony of the size nine feet, dropping the curtsy. And that would be this dreadful hush. <laughs> and then some kind soul would say, <clears throat> uh, we understand Rosemary swims very well. <laughs> <laughs> you bet I did. There may be a few here from Newburn who may recall the great glory of when Rosemary slammed the Trent and the Moose Rivers. You know. 
And the glory for Rosie on the Outer Banks, where we were every summer, was that I swam from Nagshead to Mangio and back in one day. I had to do something to prove to everybody that I was somebody. And I damn near lost my life trying to prove it. This was not because my mother did not care. Because my father did not love me. It was not because they treated me that I did not belong to the family. They tried desperately to help me feel a part of the Lord's family and to act accordingly. <clears throat> I fought them every foot of the way. I agreed with what my mother and the father said because I was trained to it. Yes, ma'am, no, sir. And the minute their back was turned, I did it my way. So you can see from the first, in order to get what I wanted, I was willing to pay the price of feeling uncomfortable and guilty and sneaky and ashamed and afraid of getting caught and found out. Very early. This kind of behavior, you know, sets a real good scene for this disease of alcoholism. Because the fear and the guilt and the shame and the self-pity become unbearable. And alcohol solved that problem. Very well. I've been damn fool. Excuse me. I would have been very lacking. <laughs> to have not used this magic beverage that tasted and smelled like you know what. But oh boy, what it did for this awkward tomboy who came home from boarding school for the holidays. The nuns had a crack at making the lady out of me, too, you know. Earn their wings a hard way. <laughs> and dumped on the dance floor at a tea dance. This takes me, but that's okay. I'll be 62 in April if I stay sober, and the dear Lord wants it that way. So during Christmas holidays, our parents gave us tea dances. Remember this? We're a little younger. And here you are with heaven help us a new ruffled dress dumped on the dance floor. With your size nine and the newly straightened teeth which were still buck. And expected to act graceful and, you know, one of the games. I'd had some help, and I found it. Old Spencer Harris introduced me to this marvelous thing, the fruit jar. <laughs> I remember some years later reading the thing that Irving Cobb described, <laughs> corn liquor, you know, the country kind of bootleg corn liquor. Said the fellow had all the sensations of having swallowed a lighted kerosene lantern. <laughs> and that he smelled like mildew setting in the silo. <laughs> and this disguised me because I puked real easy too. 
I got it first when I swallowed up as quick as I swallowed down. <laughs> Which did nothing from the ruffled dresses my mother bought me. I still remember one profound happening at the country club in Newbury during Christmas holiday at one of these tea dances. Some of us cut out and went out and played leapfrog on the golf course. Yes, what height I would take from my design for this kind of exercise, a feeling of being whole and complete and real. Maybe I was a I was a good I was a good I was a I was a I was a I was Feeling of euphoria. And I thought it through the years increasingly and more increasingly it got harder to catch. And I drank more and I guess you could say I enjoyed it less. I got hooked. Not because I wanted to. Not because I planned to. I've never known anyone who became addicted to alcohol who said to their mother and father when they were 14, I know what I'm going to do, Mom and Dad. I'm going to become an alcoholic as a way of life. The weird thing about this is how it sneaks up on our blind side. And I was more fearful. I've had these kind of incomplete feelings, and usually acutely so on Sunday afternoon. In later life, most particularly when I had been too sick, or I felt too wicked, to attend mass, as I had been trained to do as a child. The guilt, the shame, the remorse, the self-loathing. Oh, God, the loneliness. <coughs> I feel sure that my God will not allow me to ever forget the loneliness. I think this one thing was vital to my recovery as an alcoholic. Why did I? Why didn't I? Why can't I? Why have I? Why, why, why? Why me? I remember feeling as a natural continuity, if you will, of this feeling of not belonging after having asked mother if maybe they adopted me or found me under cabbage leaf or what the heck. 
uh, a feeling at one point. I didn't ask to be born. And I felt like I was a victim of some kind of terrible plot or some kind of plan or arrangement, and I was left out. And somehow, other people had things as part of their natural running gear that were left out of me. I was different. And the awful feeling of why doesn't somebody see that this isn't me, I'm not like this, this sloppy, dirty, disheveled, shaking, sinking, frightened, sick person. Oh, why doesn't somebody believe what? Isn't there somebody that sort of understand that this isn't me, I'm not like this? I think these terrible, terrible pains that the alcoholic knows is the thing that is the seed, the seed of our sickness. I think it's understandable that the, excuse me if you were Albanian, don't understand us because we can't tell them how we feel inside. We all see the shakes and we see the sweats and the broken veins and the lipstick like this and the, or the lack thereof and the dirty clothes and we smell the sick drunk alcoholic. But it takes the eyes of shared love to see the real person inside that hates itself, that does not belong, who feels that they are failure, who feels like everybody expects too much of them. Who feels like nobody has ever felt like this before? And furthermore, nobody really cares. You know, we do pretty good at trying to cover this up. No wonder the civilians don't know what we're like, because we don't let them. We can't. I was so frightened and so out of it that I was perpetuating this not belonging. That's the way I was geared. And sometimes I stripped my gears and I overdosed. Alcohol is a chemical. It's a sedative. It's a drug. And every time I was able to get some serenity, 
was when I overdosed and passed out. Would you believe him? I bet some of you might. When I first came to AA some years later, when we were, and I was learning the strange pain, of course I knew it, I can let you know, I didn't know this, say it like that. But my concept, my idea of what that word surrender to meant was being unconscious. Not thinking. Not feeling. Not remembering. Not dreading. Just cold as a clam, you know? This was my concept of serenity. Death. And I really made it too. Because I OD'd, overdosed, with one of the new wonderful discoveries of the medical age in which we live, the tranquilizer. I know now that alcohol is one of the oldest tranquilizers known to me. But you see, as I've said, I was drinking more and enjoying it less. My, my drinking solved my problem, and then my drinking became a problem. And where do you go from here? Hey, you can't even stand still, much less go anywhere. Now trapped. And I sensed that I was trapped. And this time it was going to be different. And I made all the resolutions. And I made all these, oh, Sunday afternoon prayers, you know. Oh God, help me to get to work tomorrow. Help me to get to work. I've got to have that job. Help me to get to work. I'll never do this again. And you alcoholics in this room know that I meant it. I was leveling with God as I understood him. I was turning to a higher power. I knew that I couldn't do it alone. And I was beseeching Help me through this, and I won't do it again. And then it. And later, the fear and the shame and the agony of doing it again. And after you found yourself on your knees in front of the John with the dry knees or the wet knees, on successive Monday mornings, it gets to a point where I couldn't say, oh God, get me through this one. It took time, you know, and I worked at it. In the progression of my addiction, my disease, it took some years. Ever increasing misery and fear. And I felt like I couldn't ask God to get me through this one because I had let him down. I felt like he would feel like I lied to him. <coughs> I knew I'd said I won't do this again. 
And I knew that I meant it then, but I didn't think God knew I meant it. Because here I was doing it again. And he didn't heal me and make me well. In other words, I felt like I don't got up too. I never thought so, but then I didn't think. I felt. And I treated the feelings with booze and then with the goodies, that little pills. This was as natural for me to do in the situation I found myself in as could be. It's a logical thing for a person who was suffering the way I was suffering to use and abuse and overuse anything that might make him feel better. It figures, doesn't it? You know how we are. To this day, I take two one-a-day vitamins. <laughs> you don't understand. I need them. I ain't well. <laughs> As Albert Hagen says, one's good two's better, four might help six to do something, and after you've had eight, who counts? <laughs> And my body chemistry was the type of body chemistry that leads to low blood sugar and various other problems. And I would get full of tranquilizers, thorazine, which are very bad if you have a low blood pressure and drink booze. And all at once, I'd get to work. I had to, you know. I had nobody to support me, poor little old me. My husband was in the booby hat. He had two brain images as a direct result of alcohol abuse when he was 32 years old. But here I am snapping up these pills at a doctor who wanted to help me. I was nervous. I told him I couldn't sleep. I told him I had to work for a living. I had no income and I had to own my job. My husband was in the BBX and my two daughters were in the orphanage. I needed some help and he gave me prescription. And it said on the box, one every four hours. <laughs> and you know how that is. I don't take one of anything. <laughs> to this day, I do not like a little dab of anything. <laughs> you remember that, that thing about brill cream, either? Was a little dab will do you? Not me, baby. I like a gallop of whipped cream. I like about a half of inch peanut butter on the bread. And I like butter on bread top and bottom and then peanut butter in the middle. <laughs> and a large glass of cold milk. I don't like dibs and dabs. The petty, 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 and I don't like them. I like the big thing. <laughs> Furthermore, I was so sick, I needed an awful lot of help if I were going to even survive another 24 hours. It wasn't easy, as anyone in this room can tell you. 
whether they were the, whether you're the one that was doing the drinking or you were the one who was doing the drinking. Either way, it hurts. <coughs> and, you know, Gene, if you had told me that you had felt like I was feeling and that you, somebody had told you <coughs> that if you could swallow a doorknob and you could use olive oil or something and grease and get it down, it would help this awful feeling in here. If you had shared that with me because you cared about what I was going through because you had been to it, I would have choked to death on doorknobs. <laughs> I needed relief. I needed help. And I knew it. And I was solving it any way that I could. But by so doing, I was destroying myself. And later on, I got to feel that I was such a champion savior and champion sinner and champion no-gooder and a champion no-gooder that I was at times trying to destroy what I thought I was like and had become. I was out of hope. And you know, a lot of us make it, don't we? The two sisters, Betty and Patsy, did. My brother, my only brother, David, guess what? He's been off to sauce 31 days. And I had to get out of the way so he could to kill me. <laughs> I had to outlove him. And it's a big job to outlove the drunken drunk. But if we can see the suffering alcoholic, the inside, and not let the outside turn us off. But if we can remember how we felt, we can encourage and help the fellow sufferer. God deliver me from a dried up book. I run into some somewhere. We you know we do occasionally. They miss so much. They feel miserable, a lot of them. They miss the warmth, the sharing, the caring. You know, don't bang the door today, Jean. Your father is not drinking. The remedy in that family, forget it. And these people who haven't had a chance at the sharing and caring way of life miss a lot. I'm not putting them down. Let me tell you, halitosis is better than no breath at all, and don't forget it. <laughs> but the big book talks about halitosis, you know. These dried up folks that look down their nose at people who drink liquor and don't have dreams like church. They miss so much. Yeah. And it's the big thing that makes this so important is the line. It's the line. What we find in AA 
And I hear it may be Alakah. How about that? <laughs> if you think that's some reason that they're figuring out so the Alakins will have to babysit the babies, you could have some. <laughs> I, uh, you know, they just read this. And he says, what we're supposed to be sharing is what you will like. What else? So, what will help us what we're like now? I still wear five nine shoes. Being a compulsive person, I'm no longer on the Leaving you underweight, I am grossly overweight. I stir the hot fudge Sunday and the peanut butter sandwich. And the ignominy of having this Dick Corkin's well roast beef last night, darling. Well, I'm going to take a long second about to bring the beef, okay, baby? <laughs> but what I am finding. I'm not there yet. I'm just where I am today. But what I'm finding in every day is so much more wonderful. It's so much more satisfying. When I say satisfying, I'm not talking about that kind of baby satisfied. I'm talking about in death. More than being You know, what I hurt me for. You know, you tell about the guy who went through the other, other guy, the picture in your mind of the guy sitting on the side of the bed, you know, from earlier every day. Sitting there sweating, taking those, and you can tell he made jokes up there and say, well, come, you moaning things, so come, tell me what this knows. And the poor drunk looks up and he just, all over more than anything else. <laughs> and that's the way I hurt. I hurt the I hurt all over. I was a mess of pain. Psychic pain, if you will. No, of course, the pain, if you will. Oh, boy, that hurts in a way that is unbearable.
What my behavior would be if I followed the chemical alcohol. I don't think anybody in this room knows. I don't think it's at all vital that I should know. If my creator thought it was vital to my recovery program, that I would remember that it was at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I was sitting on the side of the bed, crying, shaking, and sweating. And everybody else in the world was peacefully asleep, and I was all alone. And I had one drink left in the bottle. And I had to get to work the next morning, and I had to get some sleep in order to be in shape to go to work. But I only had one drink. And I took that one little drink, and that was the drink that did it. And Julian Bargeman says he busted my filter. <laughs> Whatever it was, it happened to me. I don't know where. But I do know that I got to where I no longer had a choice. The drink is to die for me. I drink at a time. Increasing fear and shame and guilt and remorse. There is no answer left in alcohol that will help me have even pleasing serenity. Because my understanding of serenity has broadened, changed, hopefully grown, and I hope it continues to. What I'm asking for from my Creator, who made me, although I did not order him to or ask him to, <laughs> is that I have some peace of mind, some peace of soul, some feeling of belonging, some feeling of identity, some feeling of being somebody is not dependent on any chemical. I have found a freedom at times almost unbearable in its joy in being able to be free of chemicals, tranquilizers, and alcohol. I found everything I always yearned for. I belong. I remember I had been off the sauce and going to AA, which was anonymous in my case. If not, well, I don't have one, I don't have the other. About five years, and I was standing down on the outer banks, visiting my parents, 
and I was down by the beach looking at the ocean. And one of the greatest things that I have experienced hit me, happened to me. In one split second, I knew who I was. I knew that I was a part of this whole creative process. I was where I was supposed to be, and I belonged. <clears throat> and my life has been different ever since. I was a part of this whole beauty of creation. I was not a cancer in the body of creation. I was a part of it and help flows to me and through me to others. And in this way, I belong. And what's more, my creator planned it that way all the time. He just didn't tell me loud enough. I was running too scared. I didn't hear. What my parents were trying to share with me. I didn't hear what the Catholic Church was trying to share with me. Things they had found that made their lives bearable and possible. <clears throat> Due to the nature of the malady, or my answer to my malady, whichever comes first, who cares? I couldn't hear what they were saying. I knew the words. I was my kid. I can memorize almost anything. One teacher put me in the closet to memorize 18 stanzas of something, and in about 20 minutes I had it, and I could go all through it, and it upset her, or anything, something shocking. <laughs> I was a smart kid. I had to be. I had to let you know that I was sharp. By so doing, I kept you at a distance so that you couldn't get close to me and prop me up in my leaning places. I kept you at a distance by talking too much. I still do it. But not as often, maybe. Sometimes I listen. I didn't dare let you get close to me because then you'd know what I was really like and you would not love me. And, oh, God, I need you to love me. The kind of love that accepts me as I am. Not the kind of love that says, go out and brush your hair, stop biting your nails, put on the fresh brush, enter the room like a lady, modulate your voice, use the right grammar, be polite, and then we will love you. I need gut love. I need tough love. The tough love that puts their arms around me and says, ain't it hell to wear size nine shoes when you're a teenager? <laughs> the kind of love that says, yeah, baby, but I remember you when. Bill Winfield, you remember me when? The kind of love that does not say you get all well 
and dress and get your hair fixed and your shoes healed, built up, and neat, and find some clothes that don't have cigarette holes burned in them, and come and sit like a well-bred mouse, and then we will let you come to our nice little AA meeting. No way! But the kind of tough love that says, yeah, honey, I know. Be ready at 7.30. I'll pick you up. Oh, I couldn't possibly. Uh, you don't understand. I've been sick. I just got out of the hospital this afternoon. And Sarah and Wally said, mm-hmm, I know. Be ready. <laughs> That's how I got to my first day meeting in Raleigh in 1953. <coughs> And guess what? It was December the 8th. <laughs> it was, and tomorrow is the 8th. And the reason I know this was because I was released from Rex Hospital after a case of acute gastritis. <laughs> and a taxi man took me back to the place where I roomed. I was rooming in a rooming house with about 30 gals. We all worked for the state. <laughs> and I had no money to pay the taxi driver and he put my suitcase and I opened the front door and our house mother Cassie was there and I said to Cassie do you know anything about this secret club for people that drink too much and no one had ever said look Swab why don't you go to AA Nobody had ever come and said, you know, I used to be like this, too, and I found a way. Nobody had ever sent me any literature. Nobody had ever sent me a book. Nobody had ever mentioned alcoholism to me. And I'd been in hospitals about five times. And my husband had had two brain hemorrhages as a result of acute alcoholism, and I know what you Alanons and or ladies and gentlemen who are not active in Alanons, I know where you've been because I was there too. In one letter that my mother wrote me while I was dying in Washington, D.C., a drink at a time, she said she saw Helen Jones on the street in Newburn, and she was like, in quotes, the old Helen. She looked just lovely. And mother understood that she had started some kind of secret club, and she thought it was AAA for people who drank like Helen did. And in 1941, when my Bill and I were living, I use the term loosely, together, <laughs> We like to read, and we read Jack Alexander's article in the Saturday Evening Post about Alcoholics Anonymous. <coughs> and I believe I recall that I read part of it aloud to Bill. And I believe that we mutually agreed that it was certainly a wonderful thing for those poor people. <laughs> Would you believe that this is the only conscious recollection that I have? of any knowledge of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I walked in and I asked Cassie. And Cassie, and Cassie did not say, how would I know anything about those kind of people? 
Kathy said, why, yes, I believe I do, Rosemary. She said, I think it's called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, yeah, I believe that's it. Yeah, I said. And at that point, something in my brain was saying New York. That's all I remembered consciously from Jack Alexander's article. And I thought, Maybe if I can get the address, I can write to them and I can take a correspondence course or something. <laughs> I was not trying to avoid going to a meeting or meeting any of you. I just did not know that there was groups of AA around me. And because God is understanding, is mighty patient and mighty kind, Cassie said, why, yes, there's a lady who belongs to my church circle, and Cassie was highly Episcopal, and those of you in North Carolina and this part of the state know that if you're highly Episcopal, socially you're in. And there was this lady who knew a lady who belonged to AA, who belonged to the Episcopal Ladies' Aid. And Cassie said, uh, she's a lovely person. She's the wife of a state college professor. And I said, sometime, if it wouldn't embarrass you too much, then would you see if you could get the address? Of, I think it's New York or something. In fact, there was a meeting that very night. <clears throat> and I said, no, I didn't understand. I'd been real sick with gastritis. I'd just gotten out of Rex Hospital. And she said, yes, honey, I know. And Sarah told me some of her story. I don't remember. But I remember that she talked to me. And she opened up and she told me, told me about how she felt. And I was ready. And I went to my first AA meeting. And I didn't know whether they were going to beat on bass drums and ask me to repent the day was at hand or what. <laughs> and you know that if that was the case, I would never have gone. She didn't want me to wait till I got my hair fixed and found something to wear that didn't have a cigarette hole in it. She wanted me. She liked me. She gave me the greatest gift up till then. Sarah accepted me as a sick, sick patty love, as a sick person. And Sarah told me that she believed I didn't want to be like that without saying so. She accepted me and cared about me and loved me anyhow. And baby, that's my kind of love. I love you. I care about what's happening to you. Hang in there. And the tough love. It says, I know you don't want to. I felt that way too. Come on, let's try it. If you get too nervous, we can always leave. It'll only last about an hour. 
And the impact of the warmth and the handshaking when Sarah took me to my first meeting. And they were glad I was there. And they didn't ask me to sign anything. They didn't insist I promise anything. They knew I couldn't keep promises. They couldn't either. Smoking it right here. All those good food out there. And you've come quite a distance to come here. I know you didn't come to just hear me. But I also know you're sitting there and letting me. Because you know that this helps me. And God, as I'm standing, knows that if I say anything that touches your heart and makes you feel more relieved, I'm glad. Because you give me so much. And without you, there would be nothing but darkness in the old Sunday afternoon feeling. I sometimes forget to share some of the greatest blessings that have been made possible in my life through participation in AA and Al-Anon. I need to tell you right this minute that my two daughters are alive and well and that I have five grandchildren. Talk about bonuses. My younger daughter, Sarah, got a scholarship and went up to the same boarding school at Belmont where I went. <laughs> and she became president of the senior class, <clears throat> as I had been back in 1930. And I was invited to go up there to the junior-senior banquet with the Reverend Mother of the Nuns and the Abbot from Belmont Abbey and all the hierarchy and 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 I didn't have the money to go up there. And I had a job in Raleigh working as a file clerk, which you know is the pay scale at the bottom. And Frank Ashcraft knew I wanted to go to Belmont to my daughter's junior senior, and I'd been sober two years. And Frank bought his airplane ticket for me. And looked up the schedule. And took me to the airport. And I went to my daughter's senior seat. And I sat at the head table with my daughter because she was present in senior class. And my Sarah introduced me. And she said, This is my mother. And she said it with love and oh God with pride. And she said, my mother was president of the senior class of 1930. And I stood up and I said, my name is Rosemary Dunford and I am <laughs> glad to be here. Would you believe that since that time I've had a chance to talk with Mother Morrow, who tried to teach me geometry back in the dim ages, and that Mother Morrow called me long distance in Raleigh and said that one of 
One of their students' mother had she thought a serious drinking problem, and she wondered if there was any way I could get word or try to help the parent of one of their students at Sacred Heart. Isn't it wild the way this thing works? My daughter Diane, so Sarah's married, got a scholarship, graduated, went to work for the state, married a boy she met who went to Belmont Abbey. They live in Raleigh. They have two children. And my Sarah called me when I had my 20th AA birthday in September to wish me happy birthday. And she told me that she was now, 20 years later, Girls, my Sarah's going to Al-Anon. 20 years. Because she is being affected not only by her father and her mother's alcoholism, she's married to a man who has a drinking problem. But my Sarah knows what to do about it for her own peace of mind. And she loves her Uncle David very specially. And she's read Al-Anon literature, and she writes to David and tries to encourage him. Because David was kind to her when Sarah was a little girl at the Catholic orphanage. My daughter Diane is married and lives in San Francisco and has three children. There has been a long, long, cold hall to where my Diane and I could talk together as friends. <laughs> My Diane was exceptionally brilliant, and she was desperately affected by the disease of alcoholism in her early childhood. And from the orphanage, she became Sister Frances Mary in the Dominican Order and was in New York, and she had a drunk for a mother. And the guilt of that was unbearable for me. But Diane never hated me. She hated what booze did to me. And she hated what had happened in her childhood. And she's entitled. During the past year and a half, my Diane has started going to Al-Anon. Eighteen and a half years later, some of us slow to get the message. <laughs> and my Diane and I talk long distance from San Francisco for an hour or so, and on Blue Sundays, that's what I do. I call San Francisco. And after years of being the target of all of Diane, of a lot of Diane's inner pain, Diane's been able to get professional help and work through it. She came out of the convent with counseling. She didn't go over the wall. She went to college. She married a, a lovely boy, and they live in San Francisco, and she has three children. And because she was so desperately hurt by her early childhood, and for a lot of reasons, and I'm not on the committee, thank heaven, she's been very hard to get along with as a wife, and her husband has moved out and is suing her for divorce because he could no longer live with that kind of attitude. But by so doing it, my Diane is finding the real Diane. And she's come to find out that she is a child of God 
and that God always did love her. And she and I love each other and can talk about it. This has been given to me in the past year and a half. How can I not? Thank you. How can I not want to feel close to you? I can't not want you. I never want to have any guilt that will build up that will come between me and you. I need your love. I need your prayer. I need your... I just need you. And there are many, many others this Sunday afternoon who are right where we have been on Sunday afternoon. And they need us. Please don't wait for them to get humble and serious and completely, totally willing to change and have on fresh dresses and hairdos and white shirts before you love them. Don't wait for them to suddenly be taken reasonable and call for help. Now, if this is heresy, AAY's okay. But I got a right to tell you how I feel. It doesn't have to be right, but I got the right to say so. Ain't it great? <laughs> There are too many of us that are dying alone, unloved, and unloving because they have to be loved first before they can love. They need our tough love. They need our love in action. They don't need a ruffled valentine once a year. They need us. You remember how you felt? Could you get it all together and get your hair cut and get your clothes on and get your shoes shut and calmly and and stop shaking and sweating and crying and stinking and come and sit like a well-bred mouse on the front and, you wait, and wait for your pearls of wisdom? I couldn't. I have not known many who could. None of us can do it alone. Don't be afraid of being rejected. If you're running a popularity contest in order to stay a member of AA, there's something not quite well about you. These people need us. I don't think we need to pat ourselves on the back. I think it's great that this room is filled. I know what the statistics are. Statistics bore me except that I know they represent people who are dying alone, unloved and unloving. If you take a look at those statistics or even anything approximating what the situation is, 
Father Martin says 18 million. 850,000 members of AA in the whole world. Maybe we're a drop in the bucket, and I'm not putting that down. I'm all for it. But that bucket's awful damn empty when you think about the people that are hurting and are needing us. Thank you for taking time to come. Thank you for letting me blow off some steam. I guess I needed to. You know that thing about, thanks, I needed that. Thank you for caring. Thank you for loving me, because that's what AAs do for me. They outlove me. And because you love me first, I've come to believe that God can and does too. And I have come to operate on the belief that he knows exactly what he's doing and he cares about what I'm doing. And he will show me the way. And he will prop me up in my leaning places. And because I'm a people, he sends me a people, and that makes sense. And through you, I've found the meaning of God and the feeling of God, which is love. I knew the words. I didn't know the music. Now I got it together, and it's beautiful. I want to share with you something that I found one three o'clock in the morning, and everybody else in the world was asleep with little old me. And what I was doing, John Gillespie, was I was looking for something to write in a letter to Ruth Delacroix, who was the only girl in the Newport group. And I don't sleep well, and I was sober. And I would think of, read and look for things to write to her because she was alone down here in a way. And I found this thing and I sat straight up in bed and I said, Hey, that's it! It was in a book written by Dom Hubert Vanzella and I'm not all that erudite, that's his name. And the name of it was Approach to Prayer. Here is a girl who was brought up to attend Mass every Sunday, who was sent to Catholic boarding schools, Catholic colleges, given all of the chances to learn how to develop a way of getting spiritual help, who is now learning to pray. You see, I knew the words, Our Father, and so forth. I didn't know the music. I'm learning it now. But this is what this book said. Don't let me louse it up, God. Here we go. In one man's light, another may see his way. By one man's love, another may come to believe, to hope, and to love. This is not because human beings have powers in their own right. It is because the light of God shines through us to others. It is because the love of God spreads itself. 
Just as man has arranged to cross a large body of water by means of rowing in the boat with oars, so God has arranged that man may cross the voyage of life by means of associating with others. We are not only members of the same crew, we are also one another's oars. Ain't that beautiful? I love you. Thank you.